welcome, welcome to Chutzpah. I am so happy to be here. We are in the studio, and it's morning this time, so tea and water are aplenty. The table has been signed. If you haven't noticed in some of my posts, we have a big table in here that is made from a door, and we ask everyone to sign it. So we got that checked off the list, and we are rearing to go. I hope that you're happy wherever you are, and if you're not, don't look now. But I just filled a kiddie pool in your backyard with jello. All different flavors, just jiggling around, waiting for you to finally experience what it feels like to be suspended in a vat of gelatine wonder. Go forth and enjoy. All right, enough of that silliness. Put those markers down, folks. My guest is originally from Lake Charles, Louisiana, but has lived in Louisville, Kentucky for over 43 years. She currently serves as an independent interspiritual chaplain and is a visiting lecturer with the Margaret Beaufort Institute of Theology in Cambridge, England. She retired from Bellarmine University as the director of campus ministry after 20 years of service, of which I got to experience several wonderful years of her leadership there. She's been like a human compass for me. She's empowering, patient, and has always managed to point me in the right direction, even if I still get a little turned around from time to time. Please enjoy the enthusiasm and wisdom of Dr. Melanie Prejean Sullivan. Yay! Thank you, Brenda. Is there anything you want to add? No, it's great to be here. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Um, So we can just dive right in. Uh, The first question I like to ask everyone is what gives you confidence and how do you maintain that in yourself? Well, I think um, it's easy enough to say my family. I I grew up before the women's movement, but I had a dad and a grandfather who were basically always there to answer my questions and teach me to do things and somehow made me believe I could do anything I wanted to do, you know, that being a girl wasn't a handicapped, if that that makes sense. Um, But I also think, you know, formation is certainly one thing, and and I don't want to leave out the women in my family either. Um, But personality has a lot to do with it. So uh, as you know, uh, all my life I've collected stories, and I've used them when I'm teaching. And one of the courses that I have taught is how to write a spiritual autobiography. And one of the things that I tell people who are doing that is to try to remember um, something really positive from an early time to to start us off on that trip. And then I caution them that sometimes our earliest memories aren't really our memories. And Mm -hmm. and so my feisty, my first chutzpah feisty story um, was when I was three. And like like I said, I'm not I'm not the uh, possessor of that memory, but I heard it told so many times that family reunions that so apparently here's the story um it was 1956 so there were no seat belts and my grandfather had a brand new sports car a little studebaker it was cream with brown horsehair oh, carpet and we're driving along i'm in my favorite dress in the passenger seat and somebody runs a stop sign he slams on his brakes and i go skidding forward on my shins and land oh. up somewhere under the dash I'm sure that my shins were just 
on fire. Mm -hmm. But I stood up, brushed off my dress, put my left hand on my hip, shook my right finger at him (laughs) and said, grandfathers who drive Studebakers should not slam on their brakes when their granddaughters are in the car. And then I sat down. And like I said, I don't remember that, but I heard it, and I'm telling you, it's still Melanie. And that three-year-old, you've heard that three-year-old a few times come out and say, listen, you know, you were not supposed to do that. That was a stupid thing to do, and I'm going to tell you about it. And I have to say that if I got in trouble for chutzpah, it was that same (laughs) precocious Mm three-year-old. So, yeah, that's where it started. That's awesome. So, yeah, so you don't even probably have to do too much to maintain that confidence on a daily basis. Or do you kind of have some practices? Like, you know, some people do talk about prayer in the morning or just like hyping themselves up and things like that. I I don't really think that that I have to hype myself up. It's usually the opposite. I have to calm myself (laughs) down. (laughs) Um, I try to walk every day, and and it's a type of meditation that I practice. Mm -hmm. And I certainly do morning prayer and evening prayer and Evening prayer includes a little examination of, of conscience, you know, what yeah. happened today, what went well, what didn't go well. Um, and, and I've certainly had great teachers over the years who have been very encouraging of my um, potential or my ability or a combination of the two. Um, so I would say, uh, really, for me, it's usually um, slow down, you know, gotcha. and so I, I do try to do yoga, and I do try to practice mindfulness uh, meditation periodically. But that's more the calm down rather Mm -hmm. than the, you know, ramp up for something. Um, I don't think I've really ever had trouble. Um, I've gotten into trouble, but I've never had trouble speaking to people who um, either had power or money or both, um, who were in authority, um, And, uh, you know, those stories are are not stories that I probably tell very much. But um, I would say I, I would say just remembering who I am and trying to say, you know, you were put here for a purpose and this is what it is. So don't shoot yourself in the foot. You know, right. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, let's get to maybe some of those stories. Can oh. you tell me about a time when uh, you had some some chutzpah? Well, what happened? Um This story I do remember. I was eight years old. It was third grade. Okay, now I'm in southwest Louisiana. It's hot. The nun is fully clothed in black uh, material, multi-layers, and a a starched wimple. And the fan was going. I remember that in the classroom. We had come in from recess. It was really hot. We were hot. She was hot. But she was always just so cool, calm, and collected. I just Mm -hmm. remember thinking so often how how really cool it would be to to be like that. Um, And she was teaching us about the sacraments, being Catholic. She was teaching us about participating in the sacraments, and then she was also teaching us about salvation. And what she was saying was coming across that, you know, because we were Catholic, because we believed in Jesus, because we followed the commandments of the church as well as the Ten Commandments, that that was going to help us get into heaven. And she was explaining, you know, how the sacrament of penance helped us say we were sorry and then we were forgiven. And, and basically, it was all about salvation. 
Well, about four weeks or five weeks before, I had been at one of that that same grandfather that owned the Studebaker. <laughs> I had been in his room reading National Geographic, and there was an article about cannibals on a desert island, and I was really intrigued by the article. And I had asked my grandfather about it, and he must have been pretty open-minded because I didn't leave the article frightened. I, I can remember mm-hmm. that, and even though you would think uh, telling right. an eight-year-old about cannibals would be scary. Well, anyway, so after Sister Anne told us all about salvation, I raised my hand, and I said, Sister Anne, are you telling me that if a cannibal raised on a desert island has never heard of Jesus, that when they die, God's not going to let him into heaven? Well, you know, this didn't make sense to me because God was supposed to be love and God was supposed to love everything God created and da-da-da. She paused and she said, Melanie, it is very possible that a good cannibal could get to heaven faster than a bad Catholic. And that was it. That was this trajectory that I say sent me into interfaith work. It was like, okay, God is good. Everybody has the same statistical chances of salvation. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be one religion. You don't have to be one culture. You don't have to be whatever. You have to be a good person. You know, you have to do good things. As my Jewish friends, you have to do mitzvot, right? Mm -hmm. And and that that's what God is going to care about, how you how you behaved, not not what you professed. And that that story actually ends up in a in a collection of stories that I've just published called An Apartment Next to the Angels, where I take all the stories and then I ask the same kinds of questions you ask on the podcast. What did you learn from this? Mm -hmm. You know, from Sister Anne, I learned that there's another way of thinking about things, that it's okay to question, uh, that it's it's all right not to say, well, it says in this book, therefore, that's it, Um, that I could, as we say, move the period around. (laughs) You know, the Mm -hmm. sentence doesn't just end there. And and a lot of my friends, I think, um, who are involved in interfaith work are kind of surprised when I say that I think it started when I was eight. But I really do think that was it. I think between National Geographic and and my grandfather and Sister Marianne, it was it was all there. That's beautiful. I have I have so many things to say, but I'm interviewing you, so <laughs> <laughs> so we will keep going, and I'll tell you afterwards. Okay, okay. <laughs> sounds fair. Um. Yeah, that I love that. That's another foundational story, too. Like so much of this is like being three years old and eight years old, right? Like these are yeah. just core, uh, core memories and, and core to who you are. Yeah. Um, so could you talk more about maybe how that has played out more in, in your adult life then? And, and you've taken those awesome lessons that you learned as a child into um, what mm-hmm. you did next? <laughs> well, yes, and I think I think one of the things about chaplaincy, and I, I will tell you that, um, and not to just rehash a resume, but um, I the trajectory of my life was that I, I started um, in ninth grade, really questioning a lot about um, church history. Actually, when we watched um, the film of the liberation of the camps, and that's when I first realized that. Um, as Edmund Burke would say, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. And and that's when I really started questioning, you know, how could Catholic leadership have not done anything about this crazy man? Um, of course, you could say the same thing today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, how, how could this person have gotten in office? How is this person being allowed to do 
what he is doing. And, and, um, and so to, to say that is that I was, I think, constantly in an atmosphere, and perhaps it's Catholic schools and retreats, but I was constantly in an atmosphere of self-reflection. Like, what's going on here, and what am I supposed to do about it? And I think that that is a lifelong practice that I'm not even aware uh, that I'm doing, uh, perhaps, where I'll go, uh, just like other, you know, you can regret doing things, but to really reflect, okay, like you're asking, what did I learn? And I think what I learned when I look back at all of the different things was that I was always on a path to interfaith work, um, but I started by studying history. And then I went into the museum field, which I really wanted to do. And suddenly I'm in a, in a nonprofit and I'm really understanding the difference between profit and nonprofit. And the, the challenges of nonprofit is that you feel like you're doing good things for a lot of people, but you can't keep doing it unless you have money. And you can't get money unless you have donors. And once you've got donors, you've got a problem with <laughs> equity. Mm-hmm. Immediately, you're going to have this, you know, this big donor gets something somebody else doesn't do. And, and you know, there there is a, a story that I might tell um, that, that really pushes that. But the point is that after the museum field, then I went into private school. Again, I'm with wealthy parents. Not a lot. I have to say this particular school where I taught... 90% of my students were just, you know, solid little citizens. But every once in a while, there would be, do you know who my grandfather is? And I'm like, I don't care if he's the Pope, sweetie. Yeah. You know, this is it. Um, and then eventually at a private Catholic university where, you know, the same thing is going to happen. Um, so in that course of reflection and going back and trying to reevaluate things, I, I think that when I got carried away and my chutzpah was, borderline insubordination, <laughs> let's just say. It's it's been because I thought something was either unjust or or something was happening that was indicating a tremendous amount of inequity. And and um and I'm still like that, you know, sixty-eight years old and I'm still ready to just grab some of these people around the collar and say, Excuse me, have you paid any attention to what you're doing? <laughs> Think about this. <laughs> I don't know. Did I answer your question? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I mean, I that's like something that I've always admired about you, too. And definitely like, yeah, you could tell as like as one of your students at Bellarmine. That was one of the things that I think we all admired about you was like, if you need someone in your corner, like you want it to be <laughs> Melanie, like she's going to make sure that like you get what you need or at least, you know, is going to speak up for you. Right. Because we don't always have control over other people's decisions. Mm-hmm. Like we can say as much as we want. And ultimately, it's not always our decision. But that's also what makes the effort so beautiful, right? At least you didn't do nothing. Nothing. (laughs) Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think it's also really beautiful what you did share about, especially like in the eight-year-old story. Um, Because in my episode, which is the first one, which I'm sure you'll listen to eventually when I send it to you. That's right. right. I talk about how my experience with Catholicism was the opposite. And if someone, because I literally ask that same question, except I ask the teacher, what What about the Dalai Lama? That's sure, a absolutely. great person. Yeah. Like, what, you're telling me they're not going to go to heaven? And the answer was not nearly as satisfying as yours. It was, like, very vague 
Like, you just have to have faith that, like, you're going to go. And, like, we don't get to know that. Like, who knows? Just believe in Jesus. And yeah, <laughs> it's like, what? It was so deeply unsatisfying sure. for me that it was, like, kind of one of the catalysts that made me want to find something else that would entertain my questions and would mm-hmm. let me doubt. And so it's so beautiful to me that you got to have all that questioning and doubt and think so deeply and learn so much through Catholicism, because I know that that's true. And right. And I want people to know from my episode too. I'm not saying that I'm not bashing Catholicism. Of course not. I'm bashing what like happened in my story. And, um, So it's great to hear, like, the opposite and from someone that I so admire. So it's really, it's really beautiful to hear, like, that other side of the story. And, um, yeah, nuns, nuns can sometimes have, have the best answers. Well, they were, you know, they were the most well-educated. I actually was asked this question by somebody not too long ago about why would somebody want to choose to be a nun instead of married with children? And I said, you have to realize for the past 2,000 years, these women who lived in community were the most highly educated women in the church. And they went back, you know, in my case, those sisters went back to school every summer. They didn't sit around, you know, at the beach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and so they were constantly being educated. And, that you know, some of them had some problems over the centuries with male bishops who were just, you know, short-sighted. But for the most part, they lived without much male oversight, and and they didn't have to worry about dying in childbirth, which was very real when yeah. most of these convents were flourishing um, at their at the height of the Middle and uh, Ages, and and even the Reformation. But anyway, I I think um, I think that that grounding that I had was was very freeing, um, but I, it doesn't mean that I wouldn't have in looking at my life, have shocked some people. So, Mm. you know, another story was um, a group of pagan students, a druid and three pagan students came to see me at Bellarmine, and they wanted to have a ritual for welcoming in. It was probably this time of year. It was the spring. And at uh, at the university, you're not allowed to to light fires unless, you know, you've told public safety. And there was one area that had uh, a concrete porch, but it happened to be in front of the grotto and uh, where Mary is. And I, but I got permission for these students to do this. And at the next campus ministry council meeting, uh, the pagan students were explaining how I had helped them with this ritual. Now, you need to know, I looked at the ritual. I knew exactly what Mm -hmm. they were saying. I knew they weren't encanting anything evil. I understood all of what they were doing because I studied it and they gave me the opportunity to study it. So, but when the pagan student who was reporting um, made a comment about it, the Catholic students in the in the council meeting were not happy. You mm-hmm. could see their faces were like, you know, that was it. I had yeah. just, you know, burned the last straw, so to speak. And so, um, that's a mixed metaphor. But anyway, <laughs> um, the pagan student said, but before we lit the candles for our service, we thanked the Blessed Virgin mm-hmm. Mary for the use of her space. So now they learned from me the term that we use for Mary. Mm-hmm. And they they weren't just tolerant, they were respectful and reverent even. Mm-hmm. And when you have that, when you have an interfaith conversation, people moving from tolerance to respect and reverence, yeah. then you have a whole nother thing going on. And and we we have talked about that. You mm-hmm. and I have talked about that. Um, it's it, There's a reference to it even in the book where you are watching someone else experience your ritual. 
and you experience it in a different way mm -hmm. than when you're in the middle of it. Um, and so, uh, and so sometimes, you know, you realize that you, you're going to push some envelopes and you're going to push some buttons and some people are not going to be happy, but, but you're going to do what's right and safe or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then later on you will learn from it, you know, some, from somebody. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about your book and like where people can get it and oh. what you're excited about for it? Well, um, the book, thank you. The book um, came about uh, as uh, it started off as I was going to write a handbook for campus ministry. And then I realized that uh, there were really already too many handbooks for campus ministry and that our campus was so unique that it was really not, you know, marketable. But that uh, there were a lot of stories that I wanted to tell that I had used in classrooms and at retreats and and stories that had lessons that people could use for journaling and writing their own story. And so it, it morphed uh, over COVID, especially it morphed into a book that is my stories, but with a, about 60 questions, at, you know, one after each story that says, you know, what about you? You know, when mm -hmm. did you whatever experience this? Um, it is available on Amazon. Um, and um, I, um, I had one story in there, a story when I was whitewater rafting the first time I saw peregrine falcons all over the red the the new river gorge and um was really intrigued by them and then decades later i was at norwich um i had been at the shrine of julian of norwich who was a mystic and then i walked to the cathedral and there were peregrine falcons all over the cathedral uh spires you know uh, soaring and sweeping and swooping mm -hmm. they are the fastest animal uh on earth reportedly when they really hit but anyway and the word peregrine means pilgrim so in some ways the peregrine falcon is like my spirit animal mm -hmm. as native peoples would say um and in other ways it's the journey and we're all on a pilgrimage and so i have a um a new website www.mysticperegrine.com and it tells about the book mostly mm -hmm. And uh, some of the endorsements I was very blessed to receive from some very important people in the interfaith world. And uh, you can also just get it on Amazon. An apartment next to the angels, semicolon. <laughs> interfaith, imagination, discernment, spiritual legacy. Beautiful. So, thanks. And it is, it's a beautiful cover on the book, too, by the way. So, yeah, if you're, like, at a store and you're like, wow, what's that one? It's probably Melanie's book. <laughs> It's actually the painting by a very, very good friend of mine, Sister Pavlina Kasparova from the Czech Republic. Mm -hmm. And uh, the painting uh, just touched me in a lot of different ways. And she said, oh, sure, you can use it on the cover. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, uh, I think we'll go ahead and wrap up. Is there anything else you want to add? Um, I, I just want to guess maybe do a PS about that question about and, and or answer about revisiting things and really thinking what does this mean and and how is this happening and one of the things that's happened to me since i retired was i have an opportunity to, to walk at the same time every day and to do a lot of thinking and of yeah. course i did a lot during COVID during the lockdown but but trying to look at all of the times in my life where um, maybe I needed to speak out and to try to see, is there a pattern or am I just an angry old woman? <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I, hap I can happily say there's a pattern. 
and it, it really has to do with equity. And when mm-hmm. I think that people are being treated unfairly, or I think they're getting privileges because of something, um, then that's usually when I say, nope, sorry, doesn't fly. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think it's helpful to look back over decades and say, I was consistent. Mm-hmm. Consistently fighting for justice. Yeah. Yeah. And interfaith work mm-hmm. and interfaith relationships and interfaith respect and reverence. And yeah. yeah. Thank you, Bridget. Yeah, of course. So what did we learn here today? Uh, we learned to always wear your seatbelt, especially if your grandpa is driving. <laughs> we learned about peregrine falcons, which I also have a special connection with because as a kid, I like rescued one that was trapped in this like thorny bush. So yeah, that was pretty fun. Um, and we also learned that Melanie Prejean Sullivan wrote a really great book that I hope we can all uh, check out sometime so you can find it on Amazon. If you like this show, you may also enjoy Dyslexics Untied, a podcast hosted by my boyfriend, Jacob Schumann, and Dr. Sean Apostle from Bellarmine University. Don't forget that if you are a hustler, a business owner, generally a happening person, you can get stickers made to rep you or your organization in town here in Louisville from Squidprint. And if you mention chutzpah, you are going to get 20% off your sticker order. They are so affordable, very high quality, and so local. It's a no-brainer. Go check them out. Thank you so much for being here. I am Bridget Bard. This is chutzpah and shalom. Shalom.